This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, brought to you by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. Orbition Group is delighted to bring this podcast series, which boasts some of the most high-profile data, analytics, and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Each episode details the journey to the top of our industry's most respected leadership figures, while bringing unique insights drawn from first-hand experience on the industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, experiences, and ideas to inspire, innovate, and give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Daniel Hume. Uh, Daniel is a serial TEDx and Google speaker. He lectures at UCL and LSE and is also uh, the CEO of Satalia. So, Daniel, thank you very much for joining us. Nice to be here, Carl. Pleasure's all ours. Um, really looking forward to this, Daniel. So, um, I think this is probably the first time we can claim to have had a TEDx speaker on the podcast. So, we'll, we'll hopefully get some brownie points from that from from the listeners. But um, where we always start is we ask our guests to give us a, a brief introduction into their background and, and journey to date, if you uh, wouldn't mind. Sure. Yeah. No problem. I I, I currently do do three things. I um I am entrepreneur in residence for for UCL. So I help them take deep technology and, and figure out how to turn them into, into companies. And um, for four years, ran an applied master's program in, in, in UCL, where I had 100 students every year go out there and apply emerging technologies to solving problems across a whole range of different industries. And my entire academic background over the past 20 years is in, is in AI um, with a real interest in innovation. So taking deep tech and, and figuring out how to turn it into companies. And I, and I spun out a company from UCL about 12 years ago called Satalia. And we build AI solutions for for large companies, and, and then and then try to productize those solutions. And I guess the third thing that I do is I um, I do a huge amount of of public engagement around the impact of uh, of technology on on society. Uh, historically, traveling around the world, now doing it from my my home. And and yeah, I've done four TEDx talks, which I'm I'm very very proud about. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not surprised. That's um, that's impressive. So your your background, so you came kind of through the academic route. Is that is that right? That's right. My my undergraduate was actually in AI, so it was co- computer science with cognitive science. So it was it was before AI became cool. And then my <laughs> master's was in is in intelligence, um, neural networks. My PhD was modeling the brain of a bumblebee. So bumblebees have a very small brain, but they can do amazing things. And 15 years ago, we wanted to try to to take the brain of a bumblebee and put it into a machine. Uh, I thought it was very, very hard. So I, I got interested in, 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 in the world of decision-making and optimization. Um, and, and then also spent some time during my PhD in London Business School, which is where um, uh, the, the idea for Satalia was, was born. Nice, nice. So give us a bit of insight into Satalia then, what you guys do, you know, types of projects and problems you're working on, types of customers, that type of good stuff. Yeah, we're we're we're, um, we're about 100 people um, distributed across Europe. We're, we're not venture backed, uh, so um, we've we've grown organically over over the past several years. And I guess what we do is we combine machine learning, which is very good at finding patterns from data, with optimization, which is very good at making decisions. In fact, I would argue that a lot of companies are hiring data scientists because they think they have machine learning problems. They don't. They have decision problems. And what Satalia does is that we combine uh, machine learning and, and decision making uh, to solve very difficult problems for companies like Tesco and PwC and DFS, 
and we then we then take those innovations that we've built and then try to productize them either ourselves or with the clients that we work with. So, for example, with DFS, who, who manufacture and, and deliver sofas, one of the things that we're helping them do is 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 take the infrastructure that we're building for them using AI, so their delivery solutions, their workforce allocation solutions, their manufacturing solutions, and then and actually platformize it. So we're, we're, one of the things that we're hoping to do with DFS is to help them become the Accardo of, uh, of, of furniture. Um, so so we, we, we go through, through innovation, building solutions to figuring out how do we best scale them. And that might be selling them, it might be co creating with a client it might be open sourcing them i don't really care as long as we're taking deep tech and having the biggest possible impact that we can on society yeah uh, and i guess maybe one important thing about satalia is that we organize ourselves in, in quite a unique way um i i think that if we want to be exceptional at both product and service which i think is difficult uh, we need to reinvent how companies operate and um and in satalia we don't have any fixed managers fixed hierarchies fixed kpis we operate like a swarm and one of the things i'm trying to do is 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 create use ai use new organizational paradigms to create a structure that allows for um frictionless innovation and and my ultimate goal is is to is to scale that to a planet i i want to scale uh, i want to try and unlock the creative capacity of everybody in the planet to, to allow them to come up with innovation that solve the big problems that we're going to be facing over the coming decades. Mm. I mean, that's really interesting stuff. And there's a few things in there that I definitely want to pick out. So I think first thing you rightly mentioned, so many organizations go on this journey, you know, with data and AI, and they think they've got a data problem or a machine learning problem. And when push comes to shove, um, the only reason that organizations do this stuff, right, is to get some value out of it. But to do that, there needs to be some decisions that are made off the back of it in order for that to happen. And I think we're, the organization as a whole is great at the technicalities often, you know, building the products and the solutions and stuff. But that kind of final piece tends to to kind of falter some, somewhere along along that. So great point that you, you kind of made there. And then, you know, the whole piece around structure and um i guess you know what i see in my day job is you know a lot of this stuff from a decision making perspective often doesn't come to fruition and change never occurs because of hierarchy and because of politics so really interesting to kind of hear you say what you're trying to do with your organization that's fascinating yeah um so Outside of that, what you do, I know you're involved in some other organizations as well. Just give us a brief insight into kind of what else you've got your uh, your hand in. Yeah, I mean, primarily um, academia, although I am the advisor of a number of companies, um, particularly companies that I wanted to try and make a positive impact on the world. I just became an advisor to a company called Enumeracy, which is trying to um, accelerate um, STEM learning using using AI. Um, but um, I, I'm really passionate about about inspiring and educating kind of the next generation of, uh, of, of entrepreneurs. And, uh, and so that's where I, I, I do my work in, in UCL and the LSE, uh, trying to, um, yeah, trying to get, get this, this next generation, um, on the right path to, to creating, um, uh, technologies that, that are going to make the world better. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So obviously the whole reason for having you here today, Daniel, is to kind of really get your insight into the, the world of AI and kind of, you know, put your your stamp on what would be your guide to AI for you know in terms of advice to the to the general marketplace um before we do that I'm absolutely fascinated by this TEDx thing um just talk us through your journey of, of how that happens 
Yeah, I I, um, I think that like many things in life, it's luck. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've done I've done four 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 TEDx talks on uh, one. Well, the first one which had the, the modest title of Innovation and the Meaning of Life. <laughs> uh, the second one was on was on AI and and, and its impact on society. The, the third one is how we might be able to create a, a united um, planet using technology. And and the fourth one was was highlighting the, the the big challenges that we might be facing over over the coming um, several several decades. But um, I'm my my brain is actually quite stupid. So I have to take this kind of complex world and then simplify it in my own mind. And that often means creating frameworks and structures uh, that make sense of the world. And and, and I, I, I agonize and go through a huge amount of journeys trying to simplify uh, the, the world. And, and I get to the point where I think that I have, and then I can explain it to other people. And uh, and and because I'm explaining complex ideas to people, um, they they seem to be uh, grateful for that and uh, and and get me to to do to do talks. And 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 when you're on the kind of speaking circuit, you end up coming across people who are wanting to find speakers for TEDx, and 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 then so it begins. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I guess if there's a message in there for anyone, which is a very um, prevalent topic in our industry, is that whole translation piece, right? And the the ability to be able to take those complex problems and articulate them in a way that business users, stakeholders, and you know everyday people can can understand, which is um, which is uh, interesting. Okay, so I guess good starting point. What is AI? There's so much misunderstanding I feel out there around this, and you know the whole buzzword piece. But um, I'd love to get your your kind of simplistic approach to this, Daniel. Yeah, I mean, this is a, an excellent example where where there is a, a huge amount of misunderstanding. If you ask five people what the definition of AI is, you'll get six different answers, and I, and I, and I can't take anything as as true. So I have to go down to the fundamentals, to definitions, to basic principles, to then reconstruct um, uh, my understanding of the world. And 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 actually, because I've got a background of, of in AI, um, it means that um, that I, I I have knowledge about this space. So there there are actually two definitions of AI. The, the the first definition is popular but weak, which is getting computers to do things that humans can do. So there's a lot of definitions of AI out there that that um, link to humans, assuming that humans are intelligent. Now, humans are the most intelligent thing we know in the universe, and we when we get machines to do things like recognize objects and images and correspond in natural language. When, when we get machines to do things that traditionally only human beings could do, we then assume that that's intelligence because humans are intelligent. Now, I would argue that humans are actually not that intelligent. We, we can we can find patterns in about four dimensions and we can solve problems up to about seven. But beyond that, we're pretty useless. And, <laughs> and, and we can get computers to solve solve problems with thousands of moving parts and identify patterns in thousands of dimensions. So benchmarking machines against humans, I think is a very silly thing to do. I think it's wrong to define intelligence um, with respect to human beings. That there's actually a much better definition of, of AI that comes from the definition of intelligence, which is goal-directed adaptive behavior. So goal-directed in the sense you're trying to, you're, you have a system that's trying to achieve an objective. Um, that might be routing vehicles, it might be allocating staff to maximize utilization, it might be figuring out where to put marketing money to maximize yield. You have to have a goal or a set of goals. 
behavior is how quickly can I can I allocate my resources to answer that question. Uh, but the key word in this definition, goal-directed adaptive behavior, is the word adaptive. Um, ultimately, for, for a system to be intelligent, it needs to be able to make decisions, learn about whether those decisions are good or bad, adapt their own understanding of the world so that tomorrow they make better decisions. And if I was being brutally honest, I haven't seen a single successful, complex adaptive system in production in my life. Most systems in production are, are static. In the sense, you give it some data, it makes a decision. If you give it exactly the same data, it will make exactly the same decision. And, and that, that's automation. And automation is great because you know these systems can do things traditionally better than human beings. But the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over again and expecting a different answer. By definition, automation is stupid. And therefore, by definition, it is not AI or it's not intelligent. Mm -hmm. So for, for me, the true paradigm of AI are systems that are able to adapt themselves in production now as it happens humans are incredibly adaptive which is actually why we are intelligent um but that 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 for me is that is a true paradigm and if you go to a cto and say i'm going to put a system in production that needs to make mistakes for it to get better they say no way is that going into production and if you say to a cto i need to put up a system in production that's going to behave differently today than it will tomorrow they say no way is that going to happen i need to make sure that my systems are going to beha behave themselves so building complex adaptive systems in production is extremely hard. And I would argue that there's less than a handful of companies that really know how to do it at an enterprise level. Mm, yeah. I mean, I guess across the industry in general, we are notoriously bad at complicating and mixing things up, right? In terms of the terminology that we use on things like, you know, AI and ML are interchangeably used. Um, and, you know, a lot of AI initiatives really is just trying to automate processes, as you've said, right? And I think that's what what most companies, in my experience, um, are kind of trying to get to the point of using AI for. It's just to become a little bit more efficient around certain things, which, you know, to your point, how many get to that point where they're doing really clever stuff with um, yeah. at this point in time? I don't think this well, well, is that I think that's a really good point. So, so unfortunately, it's been synonymized with technology. And, and often, you know, the AI reports that I'm seeing come out on the internet, you can just do a find and replace for technology with AI and suddenly you have an AI report. And technology is there to try to re remove friction, try to make things more efficient, more effective. Um, AI is different to technology, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but unfortunately, people are just saying that AI is technology. Yeah, yeah. So... There's obviously a whole host of hype around AI in terms of the word itself. Is it still in your mind a buzzword? Is it here to stay? Well, what's your thoughts on that? So I'm, I'm usually quite good at reinventing myself as new new paradigms come along. I, like I say, I've always been in AI, um, but um, but no, there was there was the big data, um, there was the you know, predictive <laughs> analytics um, or business analytics, and, and now there's AI. And if I'm if I'm being really honest, I I, I can't see beyond this. I, I think that AI is here to stay. I think there's a massive amount of misunderstanding about it, and companies are going to suffer because they are they're they're applying the wrong solutions to problems they don't understand. Um, but but I, I don't see it going away. Uh, what what might happen is that it might be used in conjunction with concepts like digital twins. 
So if you imagine um, AI or technology can be used to improve manufacturing, can be used to allocate staff to route vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. And there's going to be an interesting next stage to this where you have uh, this layer on top of it, what people are calling a digital twin, that are orchestrating all of those different solutions. So instead of them being solved in isolation and being efficient in isolation, um, you, you now have this layer on top that is that is orchestrating. And, it, and it's possible that that layer on top will also have an element of AI. So it might be that people will start to use the term AI in different ways, but I don't think the term AI will go away. Hmm. Yeah. From from what you're seeing, and I know you started to touch upon it earlier around, you know, the, there might be a handful of companies in the world that have kind of gotten to this point where they've productionized something that's actually complex that you would consider AI, I guess. What, what do you see across the marketplace that, um, you know, the possible usage or, or what's actually happening in the world of AI? So if we, if we go back to the two definitions, getting computers to do things that humans can do, obviously chatbots are, are starting to become more prevalent um, and, and, and changing the way that we interface with, with computers. So, so there, there, there will be ways of using these technologies that are replacing the human being. Like, for example, instead of a human reading a lot of documents and synthesizing that and turning that into insights, we can, we can get a machine to read that document a lot more effectively and efficiently. So, so I think where there are frictions across data all the way through to decision making we can introduce ai or technologies uh, to, to 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 solve those frictions and and i guess where ai plays is 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 traditionally where only human beings could do that particular task like read documents and translate them um so so we will continue to see that um and and, and that driving value but again where i see the biggest win is is automating entire processes and then having those systems adapt themselves so that those systems are essentially renewing themselves every day. So what ordinarily happens is that companies will buy a piece of technology off the shelf. Um, uh, two years later, they'll replace it with another technology and upgrade. Uh, and actually, the, 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 the idea of AI is that that's upgrading itself every single day. So, um, so we were already starting to build solutions in supply chain, in vehicle routing, in workforce, where we can use these technologies. And maybe workforce is a really good example. In in most organisations where they have workforce, they 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 have planners, people that are allocating those those that workforce to jobs. And maybe I'll give you some maths here. This might be interesting. If I've got five people that I need to allocate to five jobs. There are five times four times three times two times one possible ways of allocating five people to five jobs, so five factorial, so 120 possible ways. If I have 15 people that I need to allocate to jobs, I now have 15 factorial, which is over a trillion possible ways of allocating those people to, to, to 15 jobs. If I reach 60 people in, uh, that I need to allocate to jobs, I now have more possible combinations than there are atoms in the universe. So, so human beings can solve problems up to about seven. And beyond that, what we should be really doing is using algorithms to, to allocate people to those jobs. So, so that, 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 that's one area um, where we can use these technologies. But then what you want to do is use machine learning to determine were they the right people in those jobs? Did they have the skills that they claim they have? Did they work well in those teams? Um, did it progress their career? And, and so you can use machine learning to extract those insights so you can then better make decisions in the future. 
And that's one example of where you can tie this feedback loop of allocating people, learning if they were good allocations and, and adapting so you can allocate them, them uh, better next time. And that, that's a project we've been doing with PwC uh, where we're allocating thousands of auditors to to projects that are um, that, that are uh, yeah benefiting pwc the client the auditor in 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 in, in new ways yeah this is really intriguing daniel what <laughs> might sound like an odd question but what has happened previously then right because we've there's you know hundreds of companies that have got hundreds of employees that they're having to allocate to different jobs and workforce and stuff and you you mentioned there that humans are good up to the number of of seven so what what has kind of come before this if that makes sense people people are solving these what are called um optimization problems and and because there haven't been technologies off the shelf to solve these problems at least at least taking into account all of the complexities um of of in this case resource allocation so for example does this person have the skills to work on this project do they are they married to somebody on the project in which case there's a conflict and and so typically that knowledge is in the planner's head and the planners are then having to solve this incredibly complex maths problem but this maths problem appears in thousands of different areas so whether again whether you're trying to figure out where to spend marketing money to maximize your yield whether you're trying to figure out which suppliers to buy from to minimize your risk whether to um, uh, how to route your vehicles to maximize your deliveries they 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 uh, how to mix materials to to whatever the, 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 these these are optimization problems they exist in thousands of different disguises um, and it's typically human beings solving them and because we don't have typically computers solving them we don't know that, that human beings are solving them badly and i guess what also happens is that companies will simplify the problem so if i for example got loads of field service engineers so imagine if i've got to go and do i don't know vending machine replenishment uh, across the uk what will happen is that you'll you will cut the UK up into different regions, have regional managers that are overseeing 20 field service engineers because that's about as much as a human being can cope with. Uh, actually, in reality, you could use an algorithm to allocate those field service engineers optimally across the UK. Um, so historically, it's been the human beings and actually you should be applying algorithms to solve it. And there are off-the-shelf solutions that claim to do this, but in reality, they only do 80% of the job. And uh, then you have to hack that solution in, <laughs> until the point where it becomes useless. And now we're at the point where we can actually solve these problems holistically and 100% of what the client needs. Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes complete sense. And that was going to be my next question around, is the technology there available to kind of help with this stuff? So. Um, are you providing the technological solution as well as the advice and the consultancy that comes around that, or are you using kind of partners for that tech piece? It's a, it's a great question. So we, we tend to use partners to, to, um, to sell through actually, we, we, we have one salesperson in Italia, uh, <laughs> but we, we, we bring two things. We bring a load of assets that we've already built workforce allocation assets, field service assets, logistics assets, uh, predictive models. Um, and we have consultants that utilize those assets to customize 100% of what the, the company requires. Um, I, I'm working on a theory at the moment that if you are a pure services company, you are the walking dead. I think there's this, this trend towards figuring out how can we be asset enabled services companies where you are where you have ip that you can license but you 
build services off the back of that uh, and and then you have to make it economically sustainable and that's an extremely difficult thing to do and i am i am concerned that a lot of pure services companies are going to be dead over the next decade because they can't make this asset enablement um work mm, yeah yeah and i think you see that happening a lot right you know a lot of services industries are trying to productize what they do in some way shape or form and i mean it's happening across my sector now right you know we we put certain labels on things and we sell it as a as a product but really it's a service in disguise really so um okay what what's the biggest mistakes then that you see companies making when they kind of embark upon this journey with with ai First, first of all, not understanding what AI is, and, and it's, it's hard for a CIO, a CEO, a CTO who are exposed to you know all of this media, exposed to all of these opinions, exposed to consultants that are flogging these definitions. It's hard for them to admit that they might have been seduced by that. But there's a massive misunderstanding, so that's the, that's, that's the biggest problem. And then what that translates in is the CEO saying to the CIO or CTO, "Go and build me an AI team," and then the CTO or CIO then hiring a load of data scientists. And that is the wrong thing to do. Data scientists are very good at finding patterns in data, but all they're going to do is enable humans to make decisions uh, incrementally better. And and, and as I I argued, humans are not very good at making decisions. They need to be hiring uh, decision scientists who are actually, I would argue, there's only about 3,000 strong decision scientists across the globe. They're often found in the Germanic countries, in in Australia, in Brazil. It's a, it's, a, it's a field in computer science that's been underinvested in over the past few decades. But what's happening is that companies are hiring statisticians, um, data scientists, to solve problems that are decision problems. And, and there's a bubble in that space. Mm. Um, so that, that, that that's a, a big mistake. I also see companies getting seduced or tangled up in concepts such as ai ethics and ai safety and perhaps that's something we'll we'll talk about later on but there's a lot of scaremongering around around these technologies and bias and responsibility and transparency uh, which again once you scratch the surface you realize there are already well-established frameworks processes structures in place to deal with those things so again typically consultants rebranding themselves as ai safety experts or ai ethics experts uh, and then and then and then and then selling snake oil hmm. Maybe one more thing that I think is important is that if you are, if you have the luxury to invest in building data lakes, then then companies are building these data lakes and then put, putting an analytics layer on top of it, like Tableau or whatever, and then saying we have AI. This is not AI. Eighty um, percent of data lake projects fail, uh, and uh, if you genuinely want to architect your technologies to be adaptable, the architecture for AI is a lot more complex. Than building a data lake and putting an analytics layer on top of it, and uh, and, I, and I think again there's been a massive misinvestment, and will continue to be a massive misinvestment into data lakes and analytics. Mm. I mean, I see this, Daniel, on literally on a daily basis, right? And I mean, I'm sure you know you can empathise that. You know, I'll speak with business leaders and they're going on this journey and they're right we you know we want to become data driven right you know right what does that mean to them that means that they're going to go and hire a whole team of data scientists and often these they've not even got a lot of the time the foundational aspects in place right to work with the data never mind then to be talking about like artificial intelligence and all the thing that comes comes along and, and often it's just a case of it's it's kind of pieced together, you know, well, what else do we need? Okay, we need a data lake, right? We'll go and buy this. And then it's, yeah. it becomes a technology play. 
And before you know it, they're in the midst of this thing and everything's just happening all at once. And it's, it's a spider web of, of mess. How do you go in there at that point after, I guess, most organizations that you speak to are probably already at that stage where they've done everything that you said that they shouldn't. How do yeah. you go in there and strip that back and then kind of try and get them back on the right journey? Yeah. Talk us through that. Yeah, we, we, we do this a lot and, uh, and it's something we're very comfortable with. So we're, we're obviously very comfortable taking people on that journey of, of kind of re-understanding what the right strategy is and uh, and doing that in a way that is safe to everybody. But um, but but we would go in and we would we would identify where are the frictions across the organization. And rather than, I guess, what historically would have been done building or bringing in solutions that solve those individual frictions and ended up creating a spaghetti uh, technology organization, you, you address those frictions and gradually build your technology stack, your data lake holistically as you as you solve these individual problems so so th- this won't be rocket science to anybody but you just need to consider both dimensions your applications that are driving value in the business but being cognizant that you're making the right investment in then gluing those different applications together so they all ultimately can talk to each other and, and again it's not rocket science it's hard it requires investment it requires the right thinking but it, it's totally doable and, and we help organizations go on that journey mm-hmm. what are the kind of realistic timeframes and costs for businesses that are kind of gone on trodden the wrong path for a certain amount of time and then are having to reverse and kind of you know refine that path is there a i appreciate that's completely subjective to the organization how far along that journey they are um but is there a kind of is there a time scale kind of thing that you put on this to say look here's here's actually what it's going to take you to kind of get yourself out of this situation yeah, unfortunately, you know, if a ship has already sailed on on building the data lake, then it's very hard to put a stop to that. Um, what's happening is that that's going to create a lot of tech deck further down the line, where that data lake isn't necessarily fit for purpose um, for 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 the business needs. But but unfortunately, we have to kick that kind of down the road. It's it's not the end of the world that the the, the data's in one place, um, but you will end up running the risk of creating a, what is called a data swamp, where what will happen is is you create uh, there's lots of water analogies sorry but people will create um, data pools that then are servicing specific applications and those pools need to be synchronized with a data lake and if you're not synchronizing with the data lake then you create a data swamp so all of that all of those cans unfortunately have to get kicked down the road as it happens if you do if you do do this right this this identification of, of frictions prioritizing them correctly tackling them correctly you can actually start to see value almost immediately um, so you can you can rescue the data lake by 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 essentially it cannibalizing the value that you're creating by solving these 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 individual applications, um, so it, it it is rescuable, um, but it it is tech debt that you're going to have to deal with further down the line. Mm. Yeah, makes makes perfect sense. Is there, um, I guess, as you take these companies on that journey, are there? The, the kind of cultural piece is the thing that fascinates me. And, and I guess, you know, if we speak about just pure data analytics, you know, and businesses wanting to go on that journey, there's always this, there's almost this cultural barrier and transformation that needs to occur from the conversations that I have, I guess, AI tends to get further down the road with that conversation quicker because it intrigues people more. Right. And it's the kind of the buzzword that, that we're talking about at, at the moment, but in terms of that cultural piece with business leaders and the amount of investment required and the change of the organization, what do you see in, in that remit? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I might be regurgitating a myth here, but but I, I think that people <laughs> do feel uncomfortable with change and they do feel uncomfortable with the unknown. Uh, and there is a lot of unknown around around AI. And there's, you know, organizations are having to restructure themselves both technologically and organizationally to become more adaptive to a changing world. Remember, adaptation is synonymous with intelligence and, and organizations need to be more adaptable to be more intelligent to, to beat their, their competition. So, so let's assume that humans are uncomfortable with that change. Um, what, you know, our approach is to make sure that every single stakeholder that, that these changes are affecting are, are part of the solution. And that, that means that things go a little bit more slowly, but it means that you're going you're gonna, to um, have buy-in and, and prevent problems, uh, problems further, further down the line. So I'm actually going through a massive transformation at the moment with a with a big um, a big UK telecoms company that are, that are halfway through this process, and um, I'm uh, it's 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 fascinating. But 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 ultimately, you need to you need to talk to every stakeholder at the top to the people's lives this is affecting, and uh, and and just close that gap where where there's a where there's nervousness, where there's a misunderstanding, there's probably information that's missing. There's a delta. And that delta needs to be closed, and and either you know something that I don't, or I know something that you don't. So it's a matter of of how do we get people communicating and conversing, and, and that's my number one priority when um when 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 yeah uh, embarking on these these changes. Yeah, I guess you know there's a lot of talk in the industry around all of these type of transformational projects about providing quick wins and showing the value and showing the benefit, not just to the business commercially, but to the users day to day, right? So they can kind of see the the why behind this is is happening really. Is that something that you guys really kind of focus in on early? I am so happy that you mentioned the quick win because that's <laughs> what I had in my mind to say, but I, I forgot. Um, quick win I hear all the time from clients and I'm going to say that it's an oxymoron. It's, there, there is, you are, you are incredibly lucky if you get a quick win. The, the the win of of a uh, of a project is usually commensurate with the energy that you're putting in. So if you if you want to save millions and millions of pounds, you need to make a significant amount of investment to realizing that. Yes, you can get lucky, and and there are quick wins, and we've seen projects where, you know, we have two hundred times return on investment. But but for the most part, most projects are commensurate the value they get commensurate with the, the money you put in in reality most projects are complex they have failure points you've got people you've got politics most projects take longer and they and they fail so so the default is actually failure and it's how do you mitigate failure uh, and and i and i set a lot of expectations with stakeholders that quick wins are an oxymoron and of course that's not what they want to hear but the, the reality is is that it's um you, you get out what you put in mm, yeah and i guess most organizations especially the ones that are you know entering the unknown with this stuff it's often a case of well we'll just almost you know dip the toe in the water we'll put a little bit of money in to see if it actually works and often that's probably not enough right to see any value out of the other side and then you know you kind of get this thing where they they think oh this it doesn't work we'll we'll try again in 12 months type of thing yeah, yeah no that, that's right i mean there are there are definitely opportunities to create pilots and proof of concepts um that, that, that show value in, in you know even in three months um but uh but 
but to scale that out across the organization, um, it requires it requires a commensurate amount of investment. But you you can there's of course there is value in removing friction. Of course there's value in removing the the human from solving problems that are that that, that shouldn't be solved. Of course there's value in having lots of data to be able to extract insights from. Um, some of these things are hard to put business cases around, which is why I would encourage organizations to do to do proof of concepts or proof of values, um, so they can then create that business case to then to then invest in in scaling it out yeah yeah that makes sense you touched upon earlier the the whole piece around ethics and again that's you know becoming a huge kind of topic in, in the industry what are the kind of main concerns slash considerations here i think i think the main concern and I, i've changed my position on this very recently is that um if if people are calling themselves an ai ethicist ask them how would you feel if you called yourself an ethicist? And very often they would feel uncomfortable. And the reason why they feel uncomfortable is because most AI ethicists that I know have read a few books, they've read a few headlines, and now they're calling themselves an AI ethicist. And, and in reality, they're not qualified to do that. So, so AI ethics, I think, is actually, there isn't, there isn't a concept of AI ethics. I think it's a, it's a buzzword that's, con, that's conjured up by management consultants to, to create fear and to sell stuff. And actually, I tell a lie. I think there is such thing as AI ethics, but I think it's firmly in the in the realm of academia, which is what would happen if we built an AI that's conscious. Uh, do we have the right to turn it off? The, these these are AI ethical questions. But for the most part, most organisations don't have AI ethics questions. They have ethics questions, and yeah. they're already well established ethical processes, structures, committees. Asking ourselves, is this the right thing to do? And, uh, and and the, the, there's not a separate group of people that are, are having to, to consider things differently because of AI. That there, there is an argument to suggest that um, AI safety is a potentially a separate domain. Um, although when when you when you develop software, when you create software, you engineer it, you program it. For when you are when you are building AI, for the most part. For some parts of AI, it's trained. It's not engineered. It's, it's taught, and um, and that that uh, building software in that way is very different to to engineering it. And and it, it does it does uh, lend itself to building systems that are biased, that are um, that uh, yeah have have poor decision outcomes, that uh, are black boxes, and so you have to have an additional set of rigor around testing those the safety of those systems um but i don't think that bias is in the realm of ethics actually i think bias is in the realm of safety um and i I can give some examples um if 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 my yeah to to highlight that if that would be useful yeah yeah, absolutely yeah well well, okay well if you give give one now if if uh if you're on the ethics committee of of a ride hailing company and you've just implemented an AI that is using various different data sources to set search prices. And what you've discovered is the AI has realized that when your battery is very low, it, it, you are willing to pay more. Now, that's not, that's, this is not a, a market demand problem. There's, there's, there's plenty of, of, of taxes available, but the fact that you are vulnerable means that you are willing to pay more. And so it's exploiting a vulnerability in human beings. Um, yes, an AI has highlighted this, um, but it is in the realm of the ethics committee to decide, is this something that we're happy with or not? Uh, and, and, and yeah, 
it, it's not it's not a, a separate AI ethics question. Mm, yeah, I mean, you hear that the the phrase a lot, don't you? Just because we can doesn't mean we should. But that goes for I've I've always thought this. That means that's the same for everything in life, Indeed. right? You know, just because uh, we're talking, you know, we're adding AI on the front of it doesn't change the concept of how we think about right and wrong effectively. You know, it's Indeed. not the, Indeed. Yeah, yeah, it's not it's I, not the AI that's making the decision and then changing the price and charging the people and so forth and so on, yeah. is it? There's a decision that needs to be made beyond that. So indeed, which is which is do we want to maximise profitability uh, whilst whilst exploiting people and 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 uh, and actually that this is an important point, which is AIs don't set the goal, AIs don't set the objectives, humans set the objectives, and that's why it's in the realm of human beings and 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 and, and not not AIs. Mm. Yeah, makes makes sense. What do you think the longer term impact of AI will be? Obviously, you've spoke about you know what's what's kind of where we are and what's coming in the next kind of five to ten years. If you try to, you know, transcend yourself forward beyond that, where where do you think we'll we'll end up with all this stuff? Well, I um, this was my my most recent TEDx talk actually, where I, I talk about the the pestle of singularities. It's not got a very catchy title, <laughs> but. Um, some people might have heard of the concept of the singularity. Um, it actually comes from physics. It's kind of a point in time and space that we can't see beyond. And, and in AI, it's often referred to as the, the point in time where we build a super intelligence, where we build a brain that is smarter than us in every single possible way, which is essentially when we build a silicon god, what what, what happens to humanity. And, um, it, it, and it, the, the kind of more nuanced name for it is the technological singularity. And a good friend of mine, um, Callum Chase, coined the term the economic singularity, which is the point in time where um, AI is, is, is removing, uh, is creating mass technological employment. So, so this is one of the things that people are concerned about is that people are being freed up from their tasks, potentially being freed up from their jobs, and um, they won't be able to retrain fast enough because AIs will take those jobs. So will we see a point over the next several decades where we have mass technological employment? And, and that's a subject I'm very pe- passionate about. Anyway, the, the, the E and the T, I realized, are two parts of the word pestle. Now, if you've done a business degree or written business plans, pestle is an acronym for political, economic, social, technological, environmental, and legal. So in my in my most recent TEDx talk, I I talked about the pestle of singularities. So the, the political singularity is the point in time where we cannot determine what is true or false. So we don't know whether a piece of content that we're seeing on the internet is is President Trump or some avatar created by a malicious entity. We um, recently a a company trained the the, the uh, machine learning model on the voice of a CEO and had that model call up the accounts department and pay an invoice. And the accounts department thought that they were talking to the CEO. So what what is the point in time? Um, what does it look like when when we don't know what is true? So that's the political singularity. Economic singularity, I've already mentioned, that's technological unemployment. Social singularity is when we we, we use technology to, to cheat death, so sort of cure death. It's often referred to as the Methuselahity. Uh, and there is a hypothesis that there are people alive today that, that won't have to die, and, and that will change the nature of, of our, our social constructs. The T for technological singularities when we build a, a super intelligence that the other e is the environmental singularity which is where we are we are using technology to to improve commerce to in, accelerate consumption and that and that is putting pressures on our planetary boundaries and then the final one the legal singularity is is around surveillance states and surveillance capitalism which is where uh, the point in time where where we we, we know what everybody is doing and uh, either 
a company knows that or a government knows that uh, and they have the power to then to, to manipulate uh, the, the, the population. Mm. I mean, well beyond my depths of understanding, Daniel, if I'm being really, really candid with you, but I guess interesting nonetheless and just thinking out loud here, you know, we, we, sp- we spoke at the start around how there's probably only a handful of organizations that are utilizing any kind of complex artificial intelligence within their businesses. Um, and then on the other hand, you're talking about, you know, um, what the future may look like and the, the, the impacts across all of those um, different areas. And it seems like there's a really big gulf for us to gap to get from where we are to to where you think we could end up. You know, in terms of what you just outlined there. So, what does that middle bit actually look like? You know, in terms of the day to day, the week to week, the year to year type of thing. I think I think the concern that a lot of people have, and again, I don't know whether this is justified or not, but but there are organisations that are have hacked capitalism in the sense that they now have accumulated a huge amount of wealth and power that they can distort the the, the markets and uh, you know amazon could go and get access to incredibly cheap capital and then undercut almost any market squeeze everybody out and capture the the the, the, the those um, those consumers and that's not how capitalism should work and so the the concern is that that this power and wealth will continue to to accumulate in a handful of, of organizations and it's up to the government to try to mitigate that but unfortunately the, a lot of the people in the government are from those organizations so i <laughs> my, my 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 mission is to try to democratize innovation so i actually want to try to figure out how could we create a planet where anybody can boot up an idea swarm around that idea and those ideas those t- solutions become almost free so um, maybe one example is that Satalia has an incredibly powerful logistics solution. And, uh, and ultimately, I can't, if I ask myself honestly, how do I compete with a company that doesn't need to make money? How do I compete with Amazon? Um, and the answer is that I can't. And so one of the things I could do is make my logistics solution open source and create an economic model that, that in- incentivizes 3,000 people around the globe to continue to build out that logistic solution um and uh, and now it wouldn't make sense for amazon to have 50 people building out amazon's logistic solution they would have to use this delivery solution that's now open and one of my aspirations is to create a platform where more and more innovations are accelerated to market but they become commoditized quickly so we all have access to them in the cheapest possible way and uh, that 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 that's my 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 40 year plan um is to is to create to create a world where um, where we essentially are economically free because because the the goods that we depend on right now like nutrition and healthcare and education be, become free for everybody so if if we can if we can if we can give everybody access to those goods then everybody is then are economically free to decide what they want to consume who want and what they want to contribute to rather than having to work for the company that's in their town because there are no other options for them yeah yeah. And you think that artificial intelligence will potentially help get you there or get you closer to that goal? It, it, it could be, it could be also a dystopia, right? You know, there are, there are, there are countries around the world that are using AI to profile people, to reduce people to a single score, mm. which I think is a very bad idea. Um, but on the flip side, you could use AI to understand people's preferences, their desires, the complexities of what it means to be human, and then to figure out how to encourage them 
to work on projects um, around the globe that, that will align with their own interests, their own aspirations, that are also making a positive impact to humanity. So I do I do think that AI is is one technology that can help facilitate this 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 world of of, of potentially abundance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From a business and kind of commercial standpoint, then what do you see that path looking like for, you know, the business community as far as AI goes? As you mentioned, there's a handful of businesses out there that are doing this to a complex level and, you know, the first mover advantage and they'll reap all the rewards and so on and so forth. But how how do you see this, I guess, manifesting itself within organisations? It's a really, really insightful question, actually. Um, So I, I think that if, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a, a company that is, let's say, in grocery, and uh, I'm now having to think about competing against Google and Facebook and Amazon, who wanted to go into the grocery business, uh, my suggestion to them is to is to again open source their innovations and make it so that that you are creating economic models that incentivize people to build those innovations, but but. You make sure that you own the data that's going through those innovations and that you own the community. The, the, the battleground actually isn't going to be technology for these organizations. It's going to be access to talent and data. And, uh, and so by, by decentralizing these innovations, it might be one way to, to leapfrog um, uh, other organizations that are, are capitalizing from, uh, from the innovations that they have in-house. So that would be, and and you you will also probably see, you know, retailers, for example, pooling their data together, pooling their technologies together to be able to get, compete against, you know, a small handful of of organisations that um, that already have access to a lot of data. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Makes sense. Okay, so as we look to kind of wrap this up, then Daniel, because conscious of of time, if for the listeners out there, you know, and organisations that are just about to embark upon this journey or are on that journey and maybe not seeing the the value that they were hoping for. Just give us your kind of few snippets of advice as to what they should consider, if you would. Oh, um, I wish I could kind of empower people with a handful of questions when they're being <laughs> sold, when they're being sold AI, that they can scratch the surface and, and realize that, um, that it's nonsense. So, you know, one, one of the things is, people claiming that there isn't bias in their solutions. And if they're using machine learning, then it's inherently biased. They're either lying or they don't know what AI is. But And and and, and also, you know, asking questions about optimization and decision-making and these types of things. So I wish I could empower people to ask those questions to scratch the surface. Um, obviously, I would encourage them to, to, to reach out to, to, to me and Satalia. That would be fantastic. And But also, you know, I'm really passionate about raising awareness about this stuff. So I would be very happy to come and do talks for organizations to, to get everybody on the, on the, on the same on the, on the same page um, but but I, w- I would go into this world sober and ask us ask yourself like we do in all all aspects of business what is the business case around this and how can I prove that this technology this solution will help solve this business case rather than hoping because it's got the word AI in the title that it's going to be magically uh, that it's going to magically to solve all of our problems mm, the silver bullet yeah, yeah. absolutely um, well, Daniel, look, it's been an absolutely insightful conversation. Um, got me thinking about a whole host of things um, for, for sure. So, look, we really appreciate your time. If there are people that want to reach out to you, interested in working with you, want to book you for another talk, um, what's the best way for them to reach you? LinkedIn or email me, daniel at satalia.com. 
Perfect. All right. Well, Daniel, thank you very much for your time. You have a great weekend. And um, yeah, we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks, Kyle. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week.